You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. So friends, as promised, uh, today's episode of Resurrection Life uh, is going to be a follow-up to the subject that I raised last time in this series on Christian parenting, uh, the subject of modesty uh, in our daughters. So if you haven't listened to that episode, well, uh, today's episode would make a lot more sense if you did that first. Now, uh, when we were last uh, together, as it were... Uh, I was trying to lay out what modesty is uh, in the Bible, uh, why it is so vital a part of parenting daughters, uh, and how it is that we can give practical instruction to our daughters uh, in the area of this uh, vital feminine virtue. Uh, But friends, as I did that, I was and I remain fully aware uh, that that's a subject that is potentially controversial. Uh, Even raising the subject of feminine modesty would be offensive to many uh, in our society. And uh, among Christians, um, there's an obvious lack of consensus uh, about it. Frankly, some of us haven't thought much about it at all. So today's podcast is my attempt uh, to anticipate some of the questions that the subject naturally raises, uh, and even to anticipate some of the pushback as I called it last time. Uh, that's typical uh, with this particular topic. So I'm calling this episode Modesty for Moms and Dads, and uh, that's because I'm now talking to my fellow parents about their own convictions in this area. I'm aware that, well, some of the pushback might be coming from you. Uh, but even if you said a hearty amen to everything I said in my last Uh, episode of Resurrection Life. Well, folks, get ready. You may well need to be equipped uh, to answer objections that come from one particularly likely source, and that would be a thoughtful young lady in your home, one of your daughters or more, uh, who needs to be persuaded. So in today's podcast, here's what I want to do. I want to address three kinds of objections uh, to practical Christian instruction on modesty. Uh, That's the main thing I want to do. Uh, Along the way, I'm going to take a very deliberate digression uh, to talk about the modern-day swimsuit uh, and your daughter. Uh, And then I've got some pastoral encouragements for moms and dads that I'll wrap it all up with. So, three common objections uh, that are very typical uh, when there's practical Christian instruction on modesty. Number one, I'll put it this way, calls for feminine modesty all amount to blaming women for the sins of men. Now, that sounds like an objection you'd not be surprised to hear in the society at large. Uh, That's a pretty visceral response uh, to anything in this realm of discussion, uh, and not a few perhaps even in the church, Uh, and it might continue as an objection this way. You are just blaming the victim. Um, Women are the ones who are harassed and taken advantage of and abused by men, and aren't you just trying to solve the problem of lust in men by covering up the women in their life? Uh, You haven't actually done anything about the real problem, which is that men objectify women. 
Well, however this objection is put, there actually is a valid point uh, within it. And I want to be as clear as possible as I can about this. Men are responsible for their own sin. Uh, A man couldn't, for example, blame a prostitute for his own sinful sexual escapade, and men can't blame the girl in a bikini for their lustful thoughts and desires. It's their sin, and they will answer for it before God. And I'll go further than that. I'll acknowledge men are capable. We men are capable of lusting after the most modestly dressed woman, a pretty smile, beautiful pair of eyes, shapely lips, all it takes uh, for some guys. So no, modesty is no solution to the problem of male lust. It shouldn't be uh, ever presented that way. Folks, uh, that's why I first took up the issue of purity in sons uh, in this series. I want to put the responsibility for the sin of lust squarely on our sons and call my fellow parents to their aid in their discipling of them with that in mind. And uh, all the guys uh, listening to this podcast, uh, to all the guys, I would say, I do not care what she is wearing or how she may be coming on to you, men, you answer to God for your sin. So with that clarification, now let me say this. Folks, listen carefully to the biblical principle that's being completely missed by this first objection. And it's a principle that I think our culture as a whole is in rebellion against. So as Christians, we don't get to make decisions about our clothing, about our behavior, or really anything else for that matter, out of mere self-fulfillment or self-expression, utterly heedless of the potential impact of our decisions and our behavior upon a brother or a sister or a neighbor. Uh, I say that because Christians are lovers. Uh, That means they're not only zealous to do good to those around them, but they're also zealous to avoid doing anything that would unnecessarily hinder uh, a brother or sister in their pursuit of holiness. Jesus is expressing this principle pretty vividly in a moment recorded for us in Matthew 18 when uh, he puts a little child uh, before him. And he says this, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So, folks, it's possible to do things, whether thoughtlessly or without right malice, that are the cause of another's sin. That's Jesus' language. That doesn't remove that person's moral responsibility. It's still his sin, but it can implicate us in the guilt of his sin when we were unnecessarily and unthoughtfully uh, the source of temptation. Jesus is saying becoming a tempter in someone's life is a really bad place to be. And in his case, uh, in the situation that I've quoted from, the younger, the more vulnerable that person is, the greater uh, the sin. 
So this is the principle that the Bible holds us all accountable for the natural effects of our actions on others and calls us in love to consider the effects of those actions on others. We are called to live in such a way we don't, as the Apostle Paul would later say it, cause a brother to stumble. This is an important biblical principle that informs us in this area of modesty. Listen to how the Puritan Richard Baxter applies this very principle to the subject of modesty. So Baxter is known in our circles for a wonderful book on heaven. It's called The Saint's Everlasting Rest, uh, a good book for pastors called The Reformed Pastor. But uh, Baxter is known by many as well for a project uh, that he undertook to give pastoral advice on a dizzying number of practical uh, subjects of Christian living. He called it the Christian Directory. You <laughs> you might call it his own Resurrection Life podcast before there was such a thing. Here's what he says uh, to women about the sin of being a source of temptation to men uh, by their immodesty. Listen to Baxter. He says, though you say you intend it not, it is your sin that you do that which probably will procure it, yea, that you did not your best to avoid it. And though it be their sin and vanity that is the cause, it is nevertheless your sin to be the unnecessary occasion. For you must consider that you live among diseased souls, and you must not lay a stumbling block in their way nor blow up the fire of their lust, nor make your ornaments their snares. So ladies, in particular, don't miss what I would call a clever dodge that's hidden in this first objection. Indeed, the men in your life are responsible before God to make a covenant with their eyes. They're responsible not to look at you lustfully, whether you're modestly clothed or not. But you are responsible not to become a source of temptation by your immodesty. That's a serious sin in you. Again, whether they fall to that temptation or not. You are taking your place among many things in this society that threaten their purity, that make their fight for purity unnecessarily harder. And so, my sisters in the Lord, what that means is that one of the motives— the pursuit of modesty in a mature woman, uh, is Christian love. It's Christian love for the men in her life. Love for the Lord is first, but love for your neighbor, a photo finish, and especially your brother in the Lord. Moms and dads, that's rightly then an appeal that you can make to your daughters. Uh, Dear, it will not be edifying to the young men in your life to head out of the house wearing that. So that's my response to the first of several objections that I can anticipate uh, coming uh, as this uh, subject of modesty is, is being explored here. Calls for feminine modesty all amount to blaming women for the sins of men. Not quite, not quite. Objection number two, I'll put it this way. Standards of modesty are culturally relative. So, really, we can't be all that dogmatic about any of it. 
Well, uh, perhaps this came to your mind in the last podcast as I made some practical applications, and uh, you might with some reason uh, think, yes, okay, but we all know that modesty is a moving target uh, in history and within cultures. Uh, If that isn't your objection, it could well be the objection of a daughter sooner or later in so many words saying to you as you convey your expectations about how she dresses, Mom, this may have been immodest in your day, but it's not now. Dad, you expect me to live like it's the 1800s? (laughs) In a more serious form, this objection is actually challenging the very possibility of defining modesty, as if there's no fixed standards for modesty. Uh, They just are constantly in a state of evolution. We're in the midst of such a state in our culture today, and so whether it's a pastor trying to give practical instruction on the subject or a parent upholding certain standards in the home, this objection would go, look, none of us can be dogmatic. All elements of modesty are merely matters of personal opinion. So I'll acknowledge again, uh, there is something undeniable that's lying behind uh, this possible objection. Uh, It's undeniable that standards of modesty not only vary from culture to culture, they sometimes vary dramatically so. And even within the same culture, these standards of publicly perceived modesty change over time. And That's a fact that makes this whole subject pretty challenging. Uh, We grant this. Uh, Conscientious Christians have to grapple with this reality. I'm going to share a couple of personal anecdotes uh, that actually illustrate the culturally relative nature of modesty to some degree, and I'll refer back to these as I continue to engage on this subject. So my first illustration of this is taken from the life of my great-granddaddy, His name was Henry Hogg. Uh, He died in 1983. I was 14 years old. uh, And he was 101 years old when he died. He was born in 1882. Now, uh, it's a precious uh, privilege uh, for me to be able to remember certain things about uh, my great-granddaddy Hogg. Um, He would describe that other world (laughs) that he grew up in. And I've only, with the passing of time, come to see so much more clearly what an amazing transformation of the world he witnessed. So in his youth, horse and buggy. Uh, In his old age, space shuttle travel. is. Just amazing to think about what a man born in 1882 and dying in 1983 would have experienced. But one of the comments that I remember Granddaddy saying with a twinkle in his eye, a smile on his face, uh, was this one. I remember, Nathan, the first time I saw a woman's ankle in public. (laughs) Now, when Granddaddy said that, I, I don't know if I had a clue what... He meant when I was 10 or 12, uh, what a strange world that would have actually been. But as I've thought about it as well since then, I uh, am amazed at the transformation of the world here in the United States 
uh, that he witnessed from the late 1800s all the way through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s uh, here in the United States. Indeed, he was reflecting on a radical transformation of public perception of what is modest and immodest. Once upon a time, it would have been scandalous for a woman to show her ankle in public. That's my first illustration uh, to this point. Here's my second illustration. It's taken from my experience as a college student uh, going to East Africa on a missions trip with a bunch of other college students. And I remember, well, the women in our group, college gals, were told, ladies, where we're going, pants are considered scandalously immodest. And so we're going to ask that you only wear uh, dresses on this um, short-term missions trip. Well, fair enough. That's what uh, all the ladies did. And imagine my surprise and confusion uh, when I arrived there in East Africa as a college student and realized that in addition to considering uh, pants scandalously immodest, it was also apparently considered optional uh, for women's blouses uh, to be buttoned. I uh, could not fail to notice that uh, upper frontal nudity was not actually considered immodest in that place and in that time. I think it had something to do with the fact that um, uh, women's breasts had become a fairly utilitarian thing in that culture, and breastfeeding was something uh, very publicly done and done for ch with children uh, much older than was typical in the United States. And I can just assure you that my 20-year-old self found that cultural standard of modesty baffling. Uh, the women in our group can't wear pants, but the women in that culture don't have to wear a shirt that's closed all the way in any case. Uh, that's my second illustration to acknowledge the point that standards of modesty can vary widely across time within one culture and also, of course, uh, between cultures themselves. And as human cultures define modesty, I willingly grant we're all over the map in human history. But folks, having conceded all those things, uh, here's the mil <laughs> million-dollar question. Does this reality truly leave us as Christians in a state of utter agnosticism about what true modesty actually is? Is modesty just conformity to societal expectations of that particular moment in that particular place, whatever they are, or is there something transcendent about modesty, something that transcends all cultures? And I want to urge my listeners uh, to consider that Christians are not hopelessly adrift in some subjective uh, sea of changing cultural standards in this area. Uh, we have a Bible and it says more than we might think about what I'll call the fundamentals of modesty. So in other words, the Bible doesn't call for modesty in women and then give absolutely no guidance. So here's why I want to appeal for 
I want to appeal for Christian convictions concerning what I'm calling these fundamentals of feminine modesty and uh, the ability to affirm that there are certain things that should indeed and do indeed transcend all time and place here on planet Earth that both Scripture and I would add even nature itself plainly teaches are basic to modesty. Modesty is not a purely relative thing from a Christian standpoint. This may be something that you will need to convince a 15-year-old in your life about. Um, Here's a couple of ways uh, that I will go so far as to say uh, are not, uh, a couple of, uh, of indicators that modesty is not a purely relative thing. So, for example, uh, in my last podcast, I made a plea to parents uh, to, as I put it, say no to cleavage. Uh, And as I did so, uh, it was in light of what I'm calling one of those fundamentals of modesty from a biblical perspective, and that is uh, that feminine modesty involves covering the breasts. Uh, this is despite what I encountered in that East African context I just described. I deny that this only applies in the West and doesn't apply in various parts of Africa. And I do that because the Bible actually speaks to this issue. Uh, it becomes clear from the Scripture that this particular part of a woman's anatomy is something God has designed to have erotic appeal to men. And therefore, it is something that should be kept for marital intimacy alone. I won't do this um, here on the podcast, but I could read from passages like Proverbs chapter 5, or the Song of Solomon chapter 4 and 7, or in a less positive context, uh, chapter 23 of Ezekiel. And it would become crystal clear that in the Bible, at least, Uh, Women's breasts do not have a merely utilitarian function. Uh, They are something that God intends uh, to be the delight of a husband uh, and his wife. So what this means is that Christians on the basis of the Bible can critique a culture where the women display upper body nudity. That's not a culture that is as it should be. And when Christianity transforms such a culture, it rightly brings not only the gospel, it also brings clothing. So uh, we're not just being Western. We're not just throwbacks to the 18th century when we define modesty this way. And a young lady who's spilling out of her blouse is, a, is immodest by transcendent biblical standards. Uh, this is one of the fundamentals of modesty, and uh, it shouldn't be up for debate. Uh, let me illustrate a second way. I gave encouragements to parents last time uh, about watching how much leg your daughter is revealing or how tight her pants are And I did that in light of another one of those fundamentals, as I'm calling it, of feminine modesty. Um, What our fathers uh, would have called the nether regions, if you will, of the body, feminine modesty is especially careful uh, to clothe that part of the body, male or female for that matter, where sex itself actually takes place. 
uh, that's a part of the body that's to be most carefully clothed. Again, this is not culturally relative. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are first inventing clothing uh, with fig leaves. And the word that's used to describe what they make is the word loincloth, or some have it apron. You know well what they are seeking to do. Their first attempt at modesty is focusing on their own genitalia. Interestingly, uh, when God makes clothing of skins, the word that is used there is different. He makes for them garments, or some uh, have that rendered tunics, which apparently covered more than just their private parts, as we speak of it. But the point is, a biblical view of modesty, uh, understanding the fundamentals of biblical modesty, calls for a careful covering of our private parts. If it doesn't mean that, modesty means nothing at all. So why does this point even need to be made? Well, folks, I'm seeking to respond to an objection, that because there is a great deal of relativity in the culture at large and in the passing of time with regard to what is commonly accepted to be modest, because that's the case, all modesty is uh, ultimately um, relative. And I'm seeking to debunk that notion. Uh, There are fundamentals of biblical modesty. They need to be clear to you, mom and dad, and they need to be clearly communicated to your daughters. Sure, sure. (laughs) We can debate good-naturedly about whether showing a little ankle was actually truly immodest in 1905. But folks, there are things which should be beyond debate by biblically-minded Christians. There are fundamentals of feminine modesty that both Scripture and reason attest to. I dare say that in most, if not all, cultures historically part of Christendom, it's never been a debate that modesty entails a careful covering of that part of the body that is ground zero for sex itself. And that is the point at which I want to take a very deliberate digression. I think that has changed uh, in our day. And this is where I want to say a few words, um, moms and dads, about what I regard as the greatest of all cultural battering rams against biblical feminine modesty. And that's the modern-day swimsuit. So I think I'll start this digression by relating a conversation I had uh, with my daughter years ago about the swimsuit options that she had uh, here in the 21st century of America. So uh, the Trice family had several guidelines for the swimsuits the Trice women wore uh, to the beach or to the pool. And one of them was that some kind of sport shorts had to be worn over top of the conventional swimsuit. So that family uh, rule uh, apparently stood out to my daughter as more conservative uh, than many families, to include some of the Christian families she knew that I held in highest regard. So, predictably, uh, the question eventually came to me from a thoughtful daughter. Dad, uh, why aren't you okay uh, with what 
I see as a more common Christian rule uh, for modest swimsuits, and that is simply it needs to be a one-piece, not a (laughs) two-piece. After all, uh, a no-bikini rule would actually be a pretty conservative rule of modesty in our day, even among Christians. So, Dad, in so many words, I was asked, why the extra layer? Why the swim shorts over top of the swimsuit? By the way, there was no disrespect, no defiance, much less. Uh, this was one of those requests for the rationale uh, behind the rule, and it's the kind that moms and dads have to take very, very seriously from their young adult sons or daughters. So, folks, here's what I said. Just in case it is helpful in perhaps a similar conversation uh, that you might have, I said, sweetheart, you know well that feminine modesty entails keeping certain parts of your body out of public view, and you know that there are some parts of your body that are especially important to keep covered, and here's my settled conviction, even if I'm the only dad on the planet who holds it anymore, it is this, a few square inches of fabric is insufficient as a veil between the holy of holies of your body and the rest of the watching world particularly the world of men. Now, when I use that expression with my daughter, the holy of holies, she was old enough to understand uh, what I meant. I was saying to her that of all the parts of her body that are set apart for marriage and marriage alone, there was one in particular. And folks, only in modern Western society has a few inches of fabric been deemed a sufficient covering for this part of a woman's body. I submit that to you. I was trying to convey to my daughter the typical modern women's swimsuit provides the worst possible kind of TMI. It comes closer than virtually any other culture in revealing what Adam and Eve set out to cover in the garden. And frankly, my friends, I'm astonished that more conscientious Christians don't see this, uh, that today's swimwear is violating the fundamentals of Christian modesty. Uh, in preparing for this podcast, I pulled off my shelf a little book I read years ago on the topic. It's called Christian Modesty in the Public Undressing of America. It's by a gentleman named Jeff Pollard, published in 2001. I think it's still available online. Pollard's the one that uh, tipped me off to that quote from Baxter that I cited uh, a few minutes ago. And here's the biggest benefit of the book. It's, in my judgment, the research that Mr. Pollard's done on the evolution of swimwear over the last hundred years or so Uh, in America. He uh, speaks about the way mixed bathing was itself originally a very controversial thing in our society, and then uh, talks about how swimsuits were at first seeking to place a premium on modesty and still allow for mixed uh, swimming. And then over time, with the help of new fabrics that were invented, uh, those swimsuits increasingly placed a premium on function, on actual swimming. And then ultimately, Uh, in a part of the 20th century, uh, you can well imagine, became a whole field of fashion and a field of fashion dedicated to breaking 
social taboos against public indecency. Now, uh, this is not just the surmisings of a Christian man, uh, pastor in this case, writing about the subject. He has done a fair amount of research uh, in secular sources uh, and quotes them in that little book. One of the books that he uh, quotes uh, is a book called Splash! Exclamation point, a History of Swimwear. It's written by uh, Richard Martin and Harold Coda. Uh, apparently at the time they were working with something called Manhattan's Fashion Institute of Technology, whatever that is. Listen to their comment on the essential equivalence of modern female swimsuits and, well, underwear. I'm quoting. What the conceivers of the swimsuit strove to suppress was the natural association between underwear and swimwear, a cogent and undeniable comparison. It was also true that the women's swimwear industry in its early stages was closely affiliated with the bra and girdle industry, just as menswear for swimming was intimately, as it were, connected with the underwear business, end quote. The authors uh, then go on to be quite openly approving of what they regard as the very sensuous nature of the new swimwear. Quoting again, they say, Swimwear is a social provocation, an edge that may allow for slightly naughty, covertly sensuous behavior. In fact, they go on to say, Those who in the 19th century saw the beach as a place of indulgence and arid iniquity were not entirely wrong. So this is uh, one source of quite a handful that Pollard cites from secular experts, uh, and he's particularly interested in how fashion designers were successful over time in marketing swimsuits that amounted to what the culture recognized otherwise were nothing more than underwear. Pollard himself uh, then says this, Clearly the purpose underlying swimwear design was exposing human anatomy in a more sensual package. This could not be successfully achieved in the streets of the city, but in the name of recreation and especially sports, an amazing dichotomy of thought began to permeate our society. What was naked and lewd in the city was suddenly perfectly justifiable and permissible at the beach. Well, folks, can I just say, I have been marveling at this dichotomy of thought in society, not just society, in the church, uh, since I was a teenager. The standard of modesty is intuitive broadly to us in the church. One thing at school or church or the local Chick-fil-A, it's something completely different at the pool and at the beach. Why is this so? Uh, Young women who would be uh, mortified Uh, In one context, uh, with a skirt too high or a blouse too low, we'll run onto the beach in their two-piece swimsuit without any hesitation. My fellow parents, what I'm doing in this digression in a larger talk about modesty is, parents, I'm trying to wave a red flag 
about something that will be of relevance, keenly so, uh, in your parenting, young men and young women. This has become ubiquitously the pastime of young people. And I'm waving a red flag about uh, an unthinking sending of young women to the beach, to the pool, dressed in what amounts to sturdy underwear, and then sending young men to go enjoy their company under said circumstances. I submit this is a colossal blind spot for the church in our day. It's place where our immodesty as Christians, young and old actually, is most scandalous. Uh, Some of the very fundamentals of biblical modesty, as I've just been trying to point to them, uh, are being disregarded in the name of swimming. There's the story told of a little boy uh, who says, when no one else is willing to, the king has no clothes. And uh, I'm doing something similar, I think, I suppose, except I suppose in this case it's not the king, it's the, it's the princess uh, who has no clothes. And I'm pleading with my fellow parents to think again about this modern swimsuit issue in light of basic biblical fundamentals of modesty. It's not a purely culturally relative subject. Um, We have a Bible, and we can say certain things definitively about modesty. Well, that's the first and the second objection that I've anticipated with an intentional digression uh, that I've just brought to an end. Let me take up the third objection, and in some ways it's going to be the objection I take most seriously. Here's the third objection uh, that I will respond to. Put it to you this way. Since there's no specific guidelines in Scripture for modern clothing— Surely all practical instruction in this area of modesty will inevitably be legalistic. Now, again, this is an objection I want not only to take seriously, I want to acknowledge there is a good point within it. And here's how I put that point. Other than nakedness being shameful and sexual features of our body needing to be covered in all modesty, other than those things, the Bible doesn't tell us, freely acknowledge this, When something is too high or too low or too tight or too suggestive, those categories I gave last time, the Bible doesn't tell us precisely these things. Not only that, we should all recognize that anywhere that's the case, the Bible leaves us to practical applications of broader principles. There is an inherent danger of serious-minded Christians falling into legalism, which is to say adding man-made rules to the Word of God and then imposing them on others. Folks, let me say, I recognize legalism is a big problem. It's a danger when conscientious Christians talk about modesty, among any number of other issues. But folks, legalism does need to be rightly understood. There's so many in the church that are ignorant or misguided about the true nature of legalism. So in my ethics class 
at the Christian school where I teach, Greyfriars Classical Academy. I have uh, a lecture wholly devoted to uh, the true nature of legalism. I try to distinguish between the misconceptions and the reality of what legalism is, what legalism is not. And at one point in that lecture, I point out, it is not legalism to apply the principles of God's Word to situations that are not directly addressed by the Bible. It's not legalism because we actually have to do this. We have to do this all the time. It's right and good that we do that. Why? Because there are so many contemporary issues that are not explicitly addressed by our ancient scriptures. So medical abortions, which I also have a lecture on, the scriptures are very clear about what we should think about medical abortions, but that's not because medical abortions appear anywhere in the Bible. We apply principles to that modern-day phenomenon. Same could be said about something like pornography, for example. Now, we all have a category for thinking this way. The Bible may not speak directly to an issue, but it does have principles that can have unmistakable application to modern-day issues. So, uh, if I may quote the Westminster Confession, this is a key moment in the Confession talking about this very issue. It says, "...the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture," we might say explicitly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Now, that principle, which we all serious-minded Christians uh, find, I trust, intuitive, means that it is not, for example, legalistic for a Christian to be definitive, uh, dogmatic about condemning pornography even though the Bible says nothing directly or explicitly about it. That's not legalism. In the class that I teach on legalism, I uh, emphasize that that is not legalistic to apply biblical principles to situations not directly addressed by the Bible. But then, folks, I do go on to say that in doing so, we can fall into legalism when we fail to distinguish between what I call possible applications and necessary applications of the Scriptures. So here I'm just referring to the fact that some applications are not hard to make, even in a conclusive way, all Christians should be able to agree, but others are harder to make with certainty, and good Christians can, in fact, disagree. They can uh, come to differing convictions about how to apply biblical principles to specific modern-day situations. I remember a professor of mine in seminary making the offhand comment, something could be a good consequence from Scripture, but not a good and necessary consequence. He's using the Westminster language. And so, friends, I readily acknowledge we have to have the honesty and the humility as Christians to acknowledge when our applications of biblical principles are truly debatable, when they're in this realm of wisdom and not simple and straightforward duty. And uh, a legalistic mindset can, indeed, has afflicted those who become conscientious about the issue of modesty. 
Christians and whole Christian communities can set extra biblical rules. For example, women should not wear pants. That's immodest. Or Christian men shouldn't bear their breasts or chests any more than Christian women should. That's immodest. Or Christian men and women shouldn't engage in mixed swimming at all. Now, those are conclusions I've not drawn from the Scripture, and I don't want those good but not necessary inferences from Scripture imposed on me, and so the point is well taken in this objection. We need to be careful about the danger of legalism. Uh, Sometimes those most conscientious, most serious about uh, applying the Scripture to all of life uh, can be those who fall into uh, this sin of legalism. But friends, after making all those concessions to a very real problem of legalism, may I say this? Among those who are quick to throw down the yellow card of legalism when the subject of modesty comes up, not only are there those who, who simply want not to be sinfully judged, fair enough, there are also many in the church who simply don't want to be engaged with on this issue. And folks, that's another matter entirely. Are there many Christians who want to do what they want to do, apart from any concerns wisely or graciously expressed by fellow Christians? And here I push back strongly against the spirit of this objection. Folks, modesty, like so much of the Christian life, like so much of what I've been talking about in this whole series at Resurrection Life on Parenting, involves wisdom. That's the application of biblical principles to all of life. And there most certainly should be a willingness within the covenant community to have honest conversations about modesty among other subjects of wisdom, to share and receive concerns, and to grow in our convictions, to grow together about what modesty practically looks like. So, for example, if you have a Christian brother who uh, proposes to you uh, that um, clothing designed uh, to look like it's falling off of a woman, (laughs) that is apparently a kind of style, doesn't pass the suggestive test of modesty, going back to last podcast. Well, folks, I submit to you that's a wisdom issue. You may disagree. You may say, I don't see it that way. You may agree. Uh, You may disagree in a practical application of that and agree in principle or in theory, and he'll need to accept that, as will you. But my friends, it's a fair point of discussion among sincere Christians who are earnest about growing in wisdom. It's a discussion that needs to be had in humility and love, but here's my point. It is not legalism to have the discussion. It's the faithful pursuit of wisdom together in the covenant community. So as I am beginning to wrap up uh, my thoughts on this larger subject, folks, let's acknowledge freely that modern-day modesty involves a lot of judgment calls. Each individual and each household will have to make their own decisions in all wisdom And in the household of God, more broadly, we're going to need to happily acknowledge a legitimate range of judgment. But one of the implications of saying that 
Much of modesty involves wisdom and judgment call is this. We do need each other's help with this. We should all be willing to hear each other's perspective without throwing down uh, the yellow flag of, quote unquote, legalism as a charge. What I've sought to do in these couple of podcasts is to commend to you uh, what wisdom I have in this area. And I happily uh, leave that with your conscience, and I will continue uh, to interact, uh, by God's grace, humbly and in love, uh, with my brothers and sisters on this vital issue of modesty. Well, I'm almost done, uh, but I did say at the beginning I have some final encouragements, uh, exhortations. Uh, for moms and dads as I wrap up. So let me do that. I've entitled this podcast, Modesty for Moms and Dads, for this reason. Uh, Friends, this is a hard issue for you, as well as for your daughters. So moms, I'll simply point out, you will be deeply invested, naturally, inevitably, in your daughter's social life. Uh, You'll be deeply invested in her relationships with young men, and you will have hopes uh, that one of those relationships will lead to a fulfilling married life. Moms, as she, your daughter, acquires a womanly figure, uh, you will likely take real and legitimate pleasure in that fact. And with that may well come a certain temptation to you as a mother that mirrors one, your daughter, will have. The temptation to want your daughter to be seen and recognized uh, in inappropriate ways. Uh, The temptation to want for her the attention of men uh, in improper ways. I say this because I think every mom, to some degree, lives vicariously through her daughters. So the same temptations to immodesty that she faces, you will face on her behalf. In some cases, uh, I think moms actually push their daughters beyond what their daughter's natural modesty might even allow. My question for you as a mother is the question of contentment, which, as I said last time, the heart issue of modesty. Are you content, moms, for your daughters to be sexually attractive to just one guy? So if you are, lead her in that same contentment. And for the broader church in America, I'll simply add many of the worldly standards of modesty that young women of the church display today come not from the world, first and foremost. In some cases, they come from their own moms. So, mom, if you're not conscientious about your own modesty, you will be unable to effectively lead your daughter in this. That's the mirror image of the same thing I said to dads a few podcasts ago about their own pursuit of personal purity, sexual purity, in order to be effective leaders of their sons. Dads, I've called on you to take responsibility in this area. Your wife is, especially in this area, a vital helper in your parenting. Mom-daughter conversations are vital, but Uh, you're ultimately responsible for what leaves your house. Uh, This is part of your managing your household well, as the apostle puts it. I think there's a couple of reasons why dads uh, often fall asleep at the wheel on this issue. I think many of them are just 
desensitized to all but the most scandalous forms of immodesty. So the women in your family are, are certainly modest compared to the women at the office or the women at the local college campus or the women at the gym or what have you. But dads, we don't grade modesty on the curve, do we? We certainly don't do that in the area of purity for our sons. Become mindful of that creeping desensitized state that we can all have uh, when we live in such a scandalously immodest world. And ask yourself, what in principle are you aiming at in your home in this area of modesty? And dads, in the broader church, I suspect uh, that some of the reason for delinquency in this area on the part of dads is that dads are aware of the sexy look of the women in their home And they're not displeased by it. They might be proud to have a wife who, quote, hasn't lost it. They don't mind if she shows off her attributes. They may be proud of their beautiful daughters and may want for them to be able to compete well uh, in the world uh, in terms of their looks. Uh, Dads, where that's true, uh, this is immature. This is worldly. As a perspective, it needs to be repented of. Uh, the modesty of your daughter's dads is, is a hard issue for you as well as for your wife. Well, my friends, I cut this second podcast on the subject of modesty uh, because I was convinced it represents one of the great blind spots of American Christianity in general. Uh, and it's particularly manifested in the poor parenting that many young people are receiving in this area. You know this, our society's standards for public decency and modesty have been in a state of freefall for a long time now, and I think the church is the proverbial frog in the kettle being slowly cooked. Instead of thinking critically of our culture, biblically about our own lives, we're just settling for being a little more modest than the rest of the world, which is to say just a few clicks on the dial away from being scandalous. What I'm inviting you to do in this podcast in the last is to think for yourself in light of biblical principles about what we're aiming for, for ourselves and as parents for our children. Recognize that this will put you at odds with your culture for sure. It will also likely put you at odds with many in the church. But friends, Uh, It will preserve something precious for your family uh, and for your daughters, as I've sought to make clear. Well, I will say, friends, I've been humbled by the good feedback uh, I've received from that last podcast, and I hope today's episode will give others pause if they were inclined to just shrug it off. Uh, But I am ready to move on to consider other issues now in the parenting of young adults in the 21st century. So look for some episodes to come in the next few days or weeks as I'm able to carve out time uh, to devote to them. Friends, thanks for lending me your ear. I trust you will enjoy your service to Christ, whatever you turn to next. And be encouraged. He is risen. You've been listening to another episode of Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. 
This is a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sharing it with someone you know. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.